welcome back to the Chris Yeh podcast. I am, of course, Chris Yeh. And today's episode is going to be a barn burner. I am joined by business historian and professor emeritus of Harvard Business School, Richard Tedlow. And we are going to talk about one of the most famous people in the world, somebody who demonstrates the power of pure charisma, Oprah Winfrey. Richard, why did you want to talk about Oprah Winfrey? Uh, her story is altogether remarkable. Her standing in the world today is astonishing. I mean, she's uh, worth, um, she's world famous. She has an estate right now valued at between, I think, $2.8 billion and $3 billion, making her the first self-made uh, African-American female um, in history. Uh, she has been called the queen of all media because there is not a medium in which she has not succeeded. She has succeeded on the radio. She succeeded on television. She's succeeded with a magazine. She succeeded in the movies. She's got podcasts. She's got relationships with Apple now. Uh, and, and she has succeeded in every, in every different medium that you can think of. So there's this remarkable uh, uh, plasticity. It may not be quite the right word, but uh, uh, ability to uh, adapt uh, to different form, to different media, and and I think, you know, Marshall McLuhan many years ago came up with a formulation that the medium is the message, and uh, in 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 the case of, of Oprah Winfrey, I think that she is the message, and that therefore it doesn't matter what medium she comes to you over, because she she embodies in herself the message that she's trying to transmit, so. There is this, uh, she's um, a woman who lives a lavish life, but who is also a, a lavish philanthropist. And uh, I don't think there's anybody in the world who wouldn't return a phone call from her. So um, she's, she is an extraordinary success story. And when you consider the odds that she had to overcome to achieve the success that she achieved, it's, it's simply mind boggling, frankly. Well, we're definitely going to have to go over her biography, which has the characteristic of truly more unbelievable than any fiction could possibly be, because her rise is so astonishing, given where she came from. But before we turn to that, you said something very interesting, which is that with Oprah, she is the message. What do you think is the core message that she is sharing with her audience, a group of people that she connects with emotionally in a way unlike most of her peers? I can tell you what she would, how she would answer that question. And her answer to that would be, you are responsible for your own life. Moreover, suffering may seem awful in the moment, but you have to overcome it and by, so, by overcoming it, you improve your life. So it's almost, as if, um, uh, it's almost as if suffering is to be welcomed because uh, by overcoming suffering, you become a, a better, bigger person. But definitely, you, it's your responsibility. You're responsible for your own life. She said that on innumerable occasions. That's her basic message. That's fascinating because I think, as we'll see, it really ties in with her biography, but also there's almost a quasi-religious feel to that when you talk about 
the power of suffering to transform and ultimately make people better, it really has echoes of Christianity and other religions in my mind. Well, it certainly has echoes of Christianity. I mean, uh, you know, Jesus was crucified, and crucifixion is a, a horrible experience, a, 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 a dreadful way to die. Uh, and he was, we all know the story, he was uh, subjected to scourges on the way up. I mean, I've, I've been to the, uh, in Jerusalem to um, the Garden of Gethsemane and the various places, uh, the various stations. Um, but uh, uh, nevertheless, in a sense, he had to be crucified in order to, in order for the prophecy to be realized and in order to be resurrected. Um, so to a certain extent, I think there is that echo in which you, you, know, you have to suffer in order to grow. You can't, you, this can't be bought cheaply. And she uh, is, is very much a product of the African-American church, which played a key role in her early life. Uh, she uh, attended regularly from a, a very young age, as early as three years old, she was able to read, and she would also recite in church. Uh, they, they, they would be little, mis little Mistress Winfrey will now render a recitation, and she would recite uh, the sermons that James Weldon Johnson wrote, for example. And, uh, uh, and that people would uh, marvel at her precocity. She would go to church with her grandmother, Hattie Mae Lee, uh, her mother having left soon after her birth and moved to Milwaukee. Her mother's name is Vernita Lee. Hattie Mae Lee was her grandmother. Her, Hattie Mae Lee brought her up for the first six years of her life. And uh, the sisters at the church would turn to Hattie Mae and say of Oprah, this child is gifted. Oprah later reflected that she didn't know what gifted meant when she heard this, but it, 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 it sounded like it meant that she was special. She liked it. And let's definitely look at Oprah's early life because there's a combination of two things going on here. The first is remarkable hardship and tragedy. And the second is an incandescent level of talent and charisma. And the combination of those two is quite remarkable. That's true. Uh, the, uh, the horrors of her uh, young life are, um, well, they're legendary, actually, and they're, they're quite well known. Uh, as a matter of fact, she uses herself as Exhibit A uh, on her show, and she has always. So she's she blurs distinctions between herself and her guests and her audience, both the studio audience and the um, television. If, it, if we're talking about her show, the television audience. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, Vernita Lee, who was born in 1935, uh, lived in a place called Kosciuszko, Mississippi. Kosciusko, actually, is the pronunciation, because it is named after Tadeusz Kosciusko, a Polish-American Revolutionary War hero. Yes, that's true. He was. Uh, and there is a Kosciusko. Help me, help me again with the pop. Kosciusko. Kosciusko. Um, uh, I should have gotten that right, because um, I 
spent a lot of my life in the New York metropolitan area, and there was a Kosciuszko Bridge over the Newtown Creek between uh, um, uh, Brooklyn and Queens, and uh, that was dedicated in 1940 by Fiorello LaGuardia. So, I, I mean, the name is familiar to me, but it's, it's kind of odd that a town of 7,000 in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi would, would adopt that name. But you're right, he was an American patriot. He was an engineer, basically, and a builder um, who, who came from Poland slash Lithuania during the Revolutionary War. But at any rate, um, there really are two famous people who came from Kosciuszko, Mississippi, uh, one of which, of course, is Oprah Winfrey. We'll spend our time with her. But the other uh, is quite an important man who, uh, to the best of my knowledge, is still alive. And his name is James Meredith. James Meredith, in 1962-63, uh, integrated the University of Mississippi, or Ole Miss, as it was called. When he got down there, there, was, there were riots. The governor of the state at the time was uh, Ross Barnett, was his name. And uh, later, uh, after, in the mid-60s, I believe it was, uh, he wanted to have a march against fear from Kosciuszko, I think it was starting, down to uh, the University of Mississippi. And he was shot uh, a couple of times, but uh, not fatally, obviously. Uh, nevertheless, Mississippi has a history of remarkable violence uh, so we started off with Bernita Lee. She was born for Kusko in 1935. Uh, here's what an historian has to say about Mississippi from the 1830s to the 1930s. Um, uh, it, it led the nation in every imaginable kind of mob atrocity. Most lynchings, most multiple lynchings, most lynchings of women, most lynchings without an arrest, most lynchings of a victim in police custody, most public support for the process itself. Mississippians earned less, killed more, and died younger than other Americans. They were five times more likely to be illiterate than a Pennsylvanian and 10 times more likely to uh, take another person's life. Um, so this is, uh, in, oh, let, let, let's quote Oprah here. This was Oprah's recollection of Mississippi when she was looking back upon the time that she was born, which was in 1954, by the way, just before Brown versus Board of Education mandated the, the uh, uh, integration of schools in the United States with all deliberate speed, which turned out to be rather slow. But um, in, in Winfrey's words, uh, it was a state with moral lynchings, this is a fair quote, than any other in the union at a time when being black, a, a black man walking down the street, minding your own business could make you the subject of any white person's accusation. A time when having a good job may, meant working for a, quote, nice, end quote, white family that at least didn't call you nigger to your face. A time when Jim Crow reigned, segregation prevailed, black teachers, themselves scarcely educated, were forced to use ragged textbooks discarded from white schools. Uh, so, in his immortal I Have a Dream speech in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. said, quote, I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into a, an oasis of freedom and justice. Well, it certainly was not an oasis of freedom and justice 
during Vernita Lee's uh, life there, and it was not a an oasis of freedom and justice when Oprah Winfrey was born there. So that's 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 the context of that's where she was. And Vernita was a teenager and a single mother when she gave birth to Oprah. She was 18 years old. Um, the belief was for many years that Oprah was conceived during a one night stand with a man named Vernon Winfrey, uh, who uh, was from central Mississippi. Uh, but now it appears that, that, that it is not possible that he was her father or is her father because Vernon Winfrey is still alive. There's uh, just, you know, but uh, that's the role that he has played and it's a very important role in her life. So for all, he's her virtual father, I guess is the best way I can put it. Uh, Vernita Lee, as I mentioned, left uh, the child Oprah almost immediately, went to Milwaukee, and for the first six years of her life, Oprah spent those years in Mississippi. As a side note, I think that one of the things that has always stuck with me when speaking of parents and adoption and things like that, Shaquille O'Neal, the great basketball star, was asked about his biological father who had abandoned his mother when Shaq was an infant. And he was raised by Sergeant Phil Harrison, who we always said was his father. And he said, I only have one father. It's the man who raised me, the man who made me who I am today, and that's Sergeant Phil Harrison. And so I think that, again, it's so important, the role that parents play, biological otherwise, in the trajectory and life of their children. By the way, Steve Jobs said the same thing. He said, Paul and Clara Jobs are my parents, not the people who put me up for adoption. And he insisted on that. And again, we see fascinating echoes here. We have Oprah Winfrey born to a single mother, not perhaps knowing necessarily who her father was, having all these circumstances stacked against her, and yet at the same time having this overwhelming talent which allowed her to overcome. But let's continue with her life. We left off with her, her grandmother. She was there for six years. They were in church. She was reciting Bible verses. What happened with her life from there? She then goes to Milwaukee to live with her mother, Vernita Lee. And her mother was a, a domestic. She was a maid and uh, living in the Milwaukee ghetto, working in homes of white people. And uh, she was really overmatched by the situation in which she found herself and was incapable of taking care of Oprah. And as a result, by the time Oprah was nine years old, she was raped. And uh, so the, 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 the days of little Miss Winfrey, uh, will you do a recitation, came to an end. Uh, and this was the inauguration of a time of troubles, which really was nothing short of pure hell. Uh, Lee, as I mentioned, couldn't handle the situation. And um, not that Oprah wasn't, was raped more than once. It, it, it was the beginning of the sexual violation by several different men, including a cousin, an uncle, a family friend, and her mother's boyfriend. This went on from the ages of nine to 14. And uh, as Oprah said, and I'm quoting her now, it was just an ongoing, continuous thing. So much so that I started to think 
this is the way life is. So this is the way she spent her time, uh, her life from the age of nine. And the result of these repeated traumatic violations was confusion and guilt. Because once again, in, in Winfrey's own words, quote, it does feel good. Quoting her again, she says she allowed the abuse to continue because she liked the attention and didn't want to get anyone in trouble. And she uh, later referred to this kind of attitude as her, quote, disease to please. And she did also feel that even if she did speak up, uh, she wouldn't be believed. And uh, that turned out to be true, by the way. These awful, incredible, harrowing experiences shattered Winfrey's conception of herself. She became a belligerent delinquent with whom her mother had basically no relationship. Once again, quoting Winfrey, I became a sexually promiscuous teenager, promiscuous and rebellious, did everything I could to get away with it. She acted out, faked a robbery in the house, got herself hospitalized. Uh, when she was 14, and this she kept quiet until somebody revealed it to a tabloid, I think in 1990. When she was 14, she gave birth to a son. The child lived, uh, it was born prematurely, lived only a few weeks. And uh, so that's Oprah Winfrey at the age of 14. So if you had met Oprah Winfrey when she was 14 years old, uh, so she was born in 54, so this is 1968. What future would you have predicted for her? And we can, Chris, we can actually answer that question because Bernita Lee had a number of other children. One of them, Oprah's half-brother, Jeffrey, died of AIDS in 1989. Another of them, uh, a half-sister, died of a cocaine addiction in uh, February of 2003, and Oprah did not discover that she had actually another half-sister until the year 2010, when, and she had her half-sister, whose name was Patricia, on her show. So, I mean, uh, it's unimaginable that someone would go through something like this and come out um, to be as effective an individual and as successful an individual as Oprah Winfrey did. These really are pretty much the most harrowing things that anyone can go through. Uh, again, sexual assault, repeated sexual assault by trusted family members or friends of the family. The death of a child at the age of 14, and this is just unbelievable. I mean, if you, if you put it into a movie treatment, people would say, no, 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 nobody could possibly suffer that much. And yet that's exactly where she was. That's exactly where she was, and she suffered and prevailed. And um, you got to give her a lot of credit for that. I mean, this is not something that, put it this way, Chris, in our discussions of charismatic individuals, one of the questions that we can't come back to repeatedly, and I think it's important to in, in every episode, is are charismatic individuals born or made? And if you believe that it's the first, that they are born, Oprah Winfrey is exhibit A, because um, there was something in this young woman, uh, girl slash child, girl, young woman, that enabled her to succeed. 
when the sisters at the church said, Hattie May, this girl is gifted, they were right. She had that spark of genius, the burning ambition, the mental firepower to be able to do so many remarkable things. And again, she went through this extremely harrowing period, suffering things that nobody should ever suffer, suffering the worst things that anyone can ever suffer in their life. And yet she somehow came out of it. And after that, her record is a record of just remarkable achievement after achievement. What on earth happened to turn everything around? I think the key turning point was that she left Milwaukee in, uh, when she was 14 and went to Nashville where her father, or her virtual father, Vernon Winfrey, lived. He was married to a woman named Zelma Myers, was her uh, maiden name, Winfrey. And uh, he made it clear to Oprah, he was, a, he was a barber, he graduated from a barber college and opened up his own barber shop in Nashville. And I, by the way, I don't know, but it's possible he still got that barber shop going, I don't know. Um, but he made it clear to Oprah that my expectations of you were a mountain most high. You cannot bring C's home. If you were a C student, you could, but you're not a C student. You cannot bring C's home to this house. If you do, I will place heavy burdens on you, heavy burdens. And uh, what is really interesting to me about her transition from Milwaukee back to Nashville, um, or I, back is not quite the right word, she hadn't been to Nashville prior to this, but back to the South, uh, is not only that her father was a strict disciplinarian, but that she was willing to accept his discipline. She didn't act out. She didn't try to get herself hospitalized. She didn't fake robbery. She didn't do all the things that she did when things were utterly out of control in Milwaukee. Why that is, I don't know. But she started doing well at school. Uh, in 1971, there was a contest uh, nationwide about two kids from each state who were able to go to the White House. And uh, so in 1971, she made a trip to the White House she was interviewed uh, at a radio station in Nashville about it, and the interview went well. And um, so when this radio station that had interviewed her needed to put up a, uh, a, a, a candidate for a contest called Misfire Prevention, really, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is true, uh, called Misfire Pre Prevention, uh, they, they remembered the interview and they said, why don't we put this woman, Oprah Winfrey, up? And Oprah thought she had absolutely no chance of winning. Remember, this is for fire prevention. All the other contestants are not only white, but they're, I gather, redheaded. I mean, this is, from, and here is uh, an African-American, or as Oprah said when she was re re um, remembering this, I've been colored, Negro, black, now I'm African-American. And that, that statement itself, Chris, can, can we just hesitate on this for a minute? I can't think of another um, ethnic or racial group in this country that has gone through, in my lifetime, uh, which started in 1947, four different uh, appellations from colored to Negro to black to African-American 
Na uh, Native Americans, when I was young, were called Indians. Now they're called Native Americans. But, you know, uh, uh, Italian Americans are still called Italian Americans. Uh, Polish Americans are called Polish Americans. Uh, and, and yet here is this remarkable odyssey uh, of a race that goes through four different names. To call a person today, uh, you tell me, you, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't use the term colored person. You would use the term person of color. But to call a person a colored person would be inappropriate, don't you think? Or, or Absolutely. And it is remarkable, these evolutions, because I still remember when people of color or person of color began its rise in the 1990s. And that's when I was in college and I remember the term started coming about. And the funny thing is it feels to me almost like we're in a moment where we're going to shift from African-American back to black, largely influenced by the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that's increasingly I see uh, people using the term black as opposed to African-American. And it feels like this is also remarkable because it's seldom that the language turns and goes back to a prior version. It's seldom, it's almost never that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, I also think it's possible that we may be moving more toward using a term like people of color, certainly than we did 10 years ago. I mean, I don't remember using that phrase at all. Well, I think the, the, latest, the latest term, and this is, you may have seen this, but if not, it, it's a good thing to teach as well as to the audience. The latest term is BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C which is a little more specific because it is black and indigenous people of color. Because of course, when you say people of color, that would technically include people like me. I'm of Chinese American or East Asian descent. And my skin is definitely not what we call white in this country. And yet typically when people say people of color, they aren't picturing someone like me. Uh, they're not, but typically, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Are they are they picturing Native Americans? Are they picturing uh, uh, South Asians or or East Asians or you know Thais uh, people from Thailand, but not Taiwan? I mean, I don't know actually. Well, this is a fascinating thing because it basically boils down to conceptions of race as well as class and socioeconomic status. So in this country the minorities which have been disadvantaged historically by racism, and you can see that in the resulting levels of wealth and income, are the black and indigenous populations, hence the BIPOC term. Interestingly enough, the single wealthiest ethnic group in the United States, based on income and based on the broad groupings, are South Asian Americans or Indian Americans. That's intriguing, that's interesting. They certainly uh, make up a disproportionate number of the professors at the top business schools around the country. So that well, is a great indication it, of success. The, 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 an Indian American is the dean of a school that we both know, and Nitin um, uh, Noria. You know, it's interesting that you should say this. And this is a little off point, but permit me. Um, I can remember in the 1980s, uh, when uh, I was at lunch at the Harvard Business School overhearing, not on purpose, but they were sitting right next to me, two HBS professors, both of them uh, Indian Americans, one was Gujarati, I believe, and the other was um, a Tamil, my recollection is, 
this is the 1980s, wondering whether HBS would ever tenure an Indian American. I mean, that, that, you know, and now there's an Indian American dean who's been the dean for the past 10 years. Let's yes, and many other great professors that I took classes from, people like Bharat Anand, who has been instrumental in the HBX program, Kash Rangan, Das Narayan Das, and it is a great legacy, although a bit of a digression from Oprah Winfrey, no, I apologize. I would, I would, uh, I would add uh, certainly Krishna Palapu, uh, and uh, you know, Das Narayan Das, I remember when he came to the school in 1995, I was his director of research, and Kash Rangan I've known forever, and these are wonderful people. Let, let, let's get back though to, um, uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey in, in the misfire prevention contest. Now, she said it was like a teeny beauty contest and also you had to answer some questions. And she remembers two of the questions. One of them was, what would you do if you had a million dollars? And as she recalled, everybody was giving what might be called a politically correct answer. You know, I, I, I would give the money to my cousin Bubba who's been having trouble in life, you know, kind of thing. And she says, you know, I'm not going to win anyway, so why don't I say what I'd actually do? And she says, I would be a spending fool. I don't know what I would spend it on, but I would spend, 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 spending fool. Um, and then the second question she was asked was, what do you want to do? And she said, uh, I want to be a, a television newscaster because I want to be like Barbara Walters and I want to proclaim the truth. So... She wound up winning misfire prevention in a very racially divided city. Not something, uh, not something one would have expected, but uh, something more for her resume, I guess. So there you are. That's remarkable. And again, this is just a few years after this nadir when she sees the death of her son. And in just a couple of years, she's winning Miss Fire Prevention. I believe she also won Miss Black Tennessee. Yes, that's correct. And she starts, she achieves her dream. She's actually on television as a newscaster while she's still in high school. That's correct. Uh, I think that she first was on radio briefly, but then uh, uh, um, gets on television. Um, and she was a news uh, person. And uh, a man named, my recollection is a man named Chris Clark took a chance uh, because it was a very racially charged situation in Nashville at the time. And, um, you know, um, put her on, on news. And uh, he said she was wonderful with people, but she could never make it as a newscaster because she empathized too much with the, uh, with the situations in which she found herself. So, for example, if she were co covering a, uh, uh, a fire, she'd get back to the station and instead of doing a report on, uh, on, a, on a fire in a house, she'd work the phones trying to figure out how to help the people in the house. Um, uh, she, but she, was, she also showed her, her toughness early on. She recounts one time when she's going to a, a white area in Nashville. She goes up to a shopkeeper and says, um, uh, I, uh, I'd like to interview you. Puts out her hand to shake his hand. And he looks at her and says, we don't shake hands with niggers down here. To which she responds immediately, I bet the niggers are glad. And uh, it's interesting because she, she says, uh, and she probably went to a, a, a black university, Tennessee State, I believe. Um, 
And, and she said all her friends hated her because she or she was getting all this publicity and, um, uh, you know, they, they were cutting, mowing lawns. And so she, um, uh, she tried to, she fell prey to what she called her disease to please and tried to, uh, to help them out, buy them pizzas, ingratiate themselves, herself with them. And she's been, she finally has overcome this disease to please, I think. So anyway, uh, at the age of 21, uh, opportunity knocked. She got an, an offer um, from a station in Baltimore, WJZ, I think it was. And um, so she goes there. Once again, she's hired to co-anchor a news program. Her anchor became commander. And uh, she winds up being demoted to daytime TV. And um, she gets a show with a guy named Richard Schur called People Are Talking. And she says, after the first show, she said, this is it, what I was born to do. It just felt like breathing. It was the most natural process for me. So the first time I think that Oprah is available on YouTube, you see her as a very young person singing, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, which is quite touching because she was in many ways, in almost every way. At any rate, uh, she goes to Baltimore, her co-anchor can't stand her. She winds up uh, doing this show, People Are Talking, and, as, and she had found her metier. I mean, this was it. And one of the interesting things about seeing her in Baltimore on YouTube is that she's in an Afro. And it, I, I've never seen her in an Afro since then, at least on the YouTube, and she's all over YouTube. Uh, on YouTube. I've never seen her since then. And the Afro doesn't look natural. It looks to me like it might even be a wig. I don't know. Uh, at any rate, uh, in uh, 1983, Opportunity came knocking again. And uh, she got a chance to go to Chicago uh, and started with a show called AM Chicago, obviously a morning talk show. And she began this in, uh, on January 2nd, 1984. She was 29 years old and she took the city by storm. By uh, 1986, AM Chicago uh, was last. It rocketed to first. That, that city was owned by a man named Bill Donahue. Uh, and uh, Donahue uh, was, I mean, she just overwhelmed him. Uh, in 1986, uh, AM Chicago became the Oprah Winfrey show, and that's when the show began. She got a $1 million signing bonus, and um, uh, she just simply took off. Uh, and the show was renamed from AM Chicago to the Oprah Winfrey show. Timing matters a lot. Uh, there was an African-American man named Del Shield who got a television show in Philadelphia in 1960, and the show was sponsored by a, a, a local brewery, and the brewery got all kinds of racist notes, which basically said, uh, you know, get that nigger off your show or I'm gonna stop buying your beer. And uh, he, he, was, he, he lost the, that job. Uh, and he, he was a radio personality of some note. But with Oprah, as I say, she 
she took the, the, uh, the city by storm. In 1987, Time magazine described her as, a, quoting Time, a black female of ample bulk, in other words, she was overweight, end quote, um, whose show explored the, quote, often bizarre nooks and crannies of human misfortune. Now, a decade after that really nasty uh, remark, Time put her on its list of the 100 most influential Americans. So uh, there was a big change that took place during that time. And that is quite remarkable. I'm old enough to remember watching Phil Donahue and seeing him on television. Phil was actually a very good interviewer and a legend in the field. But Oprah just lapped him. As soon as she began going up against him, she lapped him. And again, calling upon Time magazine, that, that traditional American middle-brow magazine, I found a quote saying, what she lacks in journalistic toughness, she makes up for in plain-spoken curiosity, robust humor, and above all, empathy. Guests with sad stories to tell are apt to rouse a tear in Oprah's eye. They, in turn, often find themselves revealing things they would not imagine telling anyone, much less a national television audience. It is the talk show as a group therapy session. That's exactly what she created. And that, by the way, the quote that you just uh, came up with from Time uh, is, captures the essence of the difference between Oprah and, uh, and Phil, between uh, Oprah Winfrey and Phil Donahue. Phil Donahue was sort of in the report tradition. Oprah was in the rapport tradition. And she had this rapport with her audience. She blurred distinctions. And this woman um, uh, is, uh, I believe, the most skillful interviewer I've ever seen. I mean, she's quite remarkable at being able to interview a, an extraordinarily wide variety of people in an extraordinarily wide variety of life circumstances and make connections with these people, establish an environment in which it's okay somehow. They feel safe doing what you just said, revealing to the, the whole you know, listening public, also the audience right there, also because they're focusing on Oprah. They feel comfortable revealing uh, uh, stories about their own lives that they wouldn't tell their closest friend in a, in a, in a locked room. And that's, that's part of her, her, her remarkable talent, is bringing people out of themselves. Uh, and and, and she, that, made him, that made her a billionaire. You know, it's interesting. I hear echoes of our current political situation at the risk of a digression. It's interesting to me that there are echoes of both current presidential candidates. So on the one hand, if you think about Joe Biden, one of the things that has made him so effective as a candidate, especially now, is the sense that he is someone who has suffered great personal tragedy, much as Oprah suffered great personal tragedy and hardship, and who understands, and in the immortal words of Bill Clinton, can feel your pain and demonstrates the kind of empathy that Oprah has in these one-on-one -on -one settings. And that has contrasted with the president of the United States, at least for now, Donald Trump, who has a very different kind of charisma, but one which also has echoes of Oprah's charisma in the sense that Oprah is a multi-billionaire, the world's most famous and influential woman, 
who somehow has her legions of fans and viewers identify with her, see her as the underdog, want to see her succeed, much in the same way that Donald Trump, a billionaire who inherited his money from his father and lives an astoundingly lavish lifestyle, yet is seen as somehow an avatar by his supporters who are typically poor, less educated, and have almost nothing in common with him. It's a very remarkable leap, and uh, hopefully uh, it will come to its conclusion on November 3rd. We'll see. That is certainly the hope. But the lessons of charisma are that on the one hand, there is that empathy, the ability for the charismatic leader to sit down with the audience or with the employee or with the other people and have them feel heard, have them feel understood. But then on the other hand, the other side of it is for the charismatic leader to be someone that the followers can identify with, right? It's a two-way relationship, a two-way emotional exchange. It's extraordinary because, um, uh, and this is, uh, this is, I mean, here's the connection to Trump. I mean, when he was nominated, he looked at the camera and he said in a very loud vo uh, volume, with a lot of volume, I am your voice. And he was speaking to people who didn't, who, whose lives were nothing like his. Um, and she is able to do the same thing. Oprah is able to do the same thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't want to establish an equivalence between these oh, two. No, on the decidedly not, but there are similarities. Yeah, on the basis of anything other than this. But one of, one of the fascinating things that she said was that I transcend race. And that, that's, a, uh, that's probably the deepest fissure in the whole history of America. Um, and, uh, you know, we're living through that this very day. And she, uh, if you look at, once again, if you look at her shows on YouTube, for example, very often uh, her audience is, uh, which is often panned to, you often see reaction shots, uh, is uh, more, more white than black. It's white middle class. And uh, to be able to transcend race in this country uh, is, is something that is not very common. If you look at the history of, of television, which I'll be very brief about, and race, in the early years, uh, black people were uh, either, um, they were either denigrated or mocked or, uh, you know, Amos and Andy uh, was a very famous uh, black, uh, I guess, sitcom is what you'd call it. Um, and it really wasn't until uh, the 1960s, on Jack Benny, there was a man named Eddie Rochester and uh, who was African-American. It wasn't until the 1960s, late 1960s, that Bill Cosby uh, got on a show called I Spy with Robert Culp. And he only took the part on the basis of being Culp's equal, not his sidekick. And um, by, by 1984, which is when she hits Chicago, first of all, Chicago had uh, elected its first black mayor, Walter Washington, in 1983. Uh, secondly, Cosby was already becoming quite well known as, you know, what he became, the Cosby show was very, very successful. And, you know, until the world has found out that the man's a monster, but no one knew it then, at least certainly wasn't widely. I didn't have, I had no idea of this. Uh, um, but in 
but uh, he was sort of America's dad. And to get, and to, get to what you uh, alluded to earlier, she was, in a sense, America's therapist. And people felt they could confide in her, uh, whether, whether, the, whether they were white or black. And, 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 and like other charismatics, though, she had this very interesting way of, of drawing you into her, into her orbit of establishing a sense of, a sense of intimacy, but not too much. There, there would always be a little bit of a pushback. I mean, there's a fascinating interview that's on YouTube with her and Marsha Clark, who was the lead prosecutor at the O.J. Simpson case. And there's just an aside in which Oprah mentions that she has gone to a McDonald's um, in a Bentley. And nobody in, in that audience you know, you feel could have afforded a Bentley. But there's just, now and again, you get remarks like that, which clearly say, you know, I'm one of you, I'm like you, you can feel safe with me, but by the way, I'm a little special. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the nature of charisma. And again, I find this strange echo in Donald Trump, where he was mocked when, because of a government shutdown, when a college national championship football team came to the White House, they were served McDonald's and Wendy's on White House uh, cutlery and silverware. And people mocked him at the time. But at the same time, that's his demonstration. I am your voice. I am like you. I don't need to eat fancy arugula or go to some sort of posh restaurant. I eat McDonald's and Wendy's just like you. Well, there you have it. So Oprah, and we now pick up with Oprah as the queen of the tabloid talk show. She has dethroned Phil Donahue. This is a, a golden age for tabloid television, by the way, because not only are there Oprah and Phil Donahue, there's also figures like Gerardo, Gerardo <laughs> Rivera and Montel Williams and Maury Povich, all these figures rising up, and yet Oprah is above them all. But then she takes an interesting turn. She turns away from the tabloid formula of the nooks and crannies of human strangeness and bizarre behavior and goes in a different direction. So what led to that? It's very impressive, actually. Uh, you know, I mean, she made a change when she didn't have to. She made the decision that she was going to reposition her show away from trash TV. And I could read you. I mean, I've got the shows listed here. I mean, they're unbelievable, you know, they're, uh, they're bizarre to put it mildly uh, and, and reposition it away from that toward more self-help, uh, toward something that was a little bit more middle-class, uh, a little bit more um, acceptable uh, to her critics, I think, and um, uh, made a success out of that too. And that was really very important because she, uh, if you take a look at the, the, the pictures of her with people, I mean, everybody who's anybody has been photographed with this woman. And um, whether that would have been possible had she stayed in the realm of trash TV, I, 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 I think is quite doubtful. Well, you don't see presidents lining up to have their pictures taken with Jerry Springer or Maury Povich, successful as though they may be. No, and, and, that's, and I, I doubt very much that that's going to change. 
So Oprah becomes the self-help guru. She's helping her audience better themselves. And this, again, ties back in with that core notion of empathy. And yes. so now the empathy is not just, I understand your troubles, but I understand your troubles and I'm going to show you how to overcome them. Right. Absolutely. And um, the fact that I can overcome mine means that you can overcome yours. And she, everybody knows her story. So, uh, I mean, the fact that she's, uh, you know, she's on stage and you're in the audience She's on stage for a reason. She's overcome not just the horrendous upbringing she had, but the fact that she's an African-American woman. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, in a racist society, there was uh, a lot of talk about the 1980s being post-racial America. And of course, that turned out to be quite untrue. Uh, but uh, in a racist, sexist society, an African-American woman becomes the leading figure on uh, on the medium, which still at the time in the 80s and the 90s was a sentiment of attention. It's remarkable. It absolutely is. And again, this is amazing because as you put it, it's every medium. It's not just television, but it's also radio. It's a magazine. And perhaps most importantly for us authors, it's also a book club. Well, a book club, but it's also the movies. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the book club is has has been, uh, with the exception of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, she I believe is the most. I, I don't think, I, I don't think this is an exaggeration. You could say that she's the most important person in publishing. That if you write a book and she makes it part of her, if she endorses it, the book club itself closed, then it opened again, then it closed. Um, and there's a very interesting story about one of these books, which is um, um, called A Million Little Pieces, written by a man named James Frey, F-R-E-Y. We should get to that be at, at, perhaps at the conclusion of our discussion. Uh, at any rate, uh, the book club revolutionizes um, uh, uh, publishing and makes a lot of people very wealthy who's, who otherwise were unknown. Uh, so the, the first book chosen in the book club which my recollection is started in 96, 1996, was uh, a book called the, the Deep End of the Ocean written by a woman named Jacqueline Michard. I never heard of her. I, to my understanding, she was not well known prior to Oprah's endorsement of this book. And the book, you know, sold uh, far greater than anybody dreamed. And that shows well, charismatic leaders, by definition, have followed. That showed the power of an Oprah endorsement. That also, you see that with her favorite things. An Oprah endorsement is, is worth a fortune. Yes, unfortunately, I looked through the entire list of books that she had picked for her book club, which Apple is restarting, by the way, yet again. So Oprah's book club is coming back. But I noticed there were no books of business history, no real business books at all on the list. Hopefully we can convince her to change her mind. Well, it would be awfully nice for me if they chose my forthcoming book. I'll tell you. Absolutely. But you mentioned the power of Oprah's recommendation. And that's a perfect segue into a very important recommendation and the way she actually got into politics in 2007, 2008, which is her endorsement of Barack Obama during the Democratic primaries. 
And this was a key, key event during that contest. It both showed her power and also it's remarkable that this is the thing that caused her to come in off the sidelines. So talk a little bit about that. It's astonishing uh, because, because she was a mass market, mass medium person. Uh, and that's why she, for example, said, I transcend race. Uh, she stayed away from politics. Because once again, if your message is you have control over your life, that's an apolitical message. That's not a way of saying what you need to do is become a Washington lobbyist or something like that. But she met Obama, who was a Chicagoan uh, transplant. And she, of course, was in Chicago. She was quite taken with him very early on and uh, announced her support for him. I recollection was on the Larry King show, I think. Um, but she campaigned with him. And uh, uh, no, she was also a friend of Hillary Clinton and was uh, photographed with her. And she said, I've got nothing bad to say about Hillary Clinton. It's just Barack Obama, a message of hope and change, which I believe in. And she was, she, as I say, she campaigned with him in Iowa. And he, my recollection is he won that primary, uh, a, prim a state, by the way, with a very small African-American population relative to others uh, where she campaigned. But it is believed, and it's very hard to know for sure, but it is believed that during those, the primary season, she was responsible for one million votes for, for Barack Obama. And my recollection is that, that he, if you, can, if you actually counted votes, he and Hillary were almost, uh, Barack and, and Hillary were almost tied. If, if she was really responsible for one million votes, that's, that means a lot. That's right. The number of votes. So Barack Obama did win more of the popular vote than Hillary Clinton during that particular primary season. But his total lead was a little bit less than a million votes. Yes. So you could argue Oprah made the difference in that election. It was about 18 million. My recollection is that, that Hillary got maybe a 19 mm -hmm. or whatever. But the point, the point is also, I mean, the, because of the way that the primaries ran that year, a lot of them ran through states with large African-American populations. And uh, Oprah there saying what she said and, and endorsing Obama time and time again. And she wound up uh, receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Obama in, in 2013. And she has continued an increased level of political involvement since then. So she has worked with a number of candidates. More rec most recently, for example, I believe she endorsed and campaigned with Stacey Abrams in Georgia in her governor uh, race there. And so Oprah has almost changed, right? That experience has changed. She's more willing to step into the political field. And I think even in 2018, there was talk of Oprah running for president. There was. Uh, my recollection is uh, that that talk began after she gave a, a very uh, Oprah-esque, if you will, speech at, I believe, it, at the Golden Globes. And she, she said, look, I'm not interested. Um, but she, yeah, you're quite right. Uh, she has become more political. Uh, Stacey Abrams really should have won that race, I think, if it had been conducted, if, if Georgia had its polling done properly, uh, which, by the way, could be a big problem in November. Uh, both in, in Georgia and in Florida and heaven knows where else. But, um, uh, you know, her, her voice and her word means a lot. Her endorsement means the world. It, that, that was true with, with the, the books, with um, 
certainly with uh, her favorite things. And now it's, you know, uh, with political candidates, although my, I don't believe she's endorsed anybody for the presidency yet, has she? I don't think so. Uh, I would have to check, but my guess is we will see her weigh in before this is all over. I think so too. And I think that the, the Biden people, maybe she is waiting until he, he announces his vice presidential uh, nominee. But I, I um, believe me, they're going to want it. And oh. uh, so we'll see what happens. Absolutely. And I think this would be a good time since we've covered the arc of Oprah's remarkable career. Again, we didn't go into all the details, the magazines and things like that, but I don't think it's necessary to understand the Oprah phenomenon. I think it's worth considering the various strands, the similarities with some of the figures we talked with in the past. We began with Steve Jobs, somebody whom we described as being potentially a tough manager, but with the ability for people to feel like they were going to do the best work of their career underneath him. And with Oprah, the similarity really comes to Oprah and her audience, where her audience feels like by following her, they're going to become better people. There's that non-economic relationship. In fact, it is a, a semi-economic relationship. They get to see her for free, but they then will spend based on her recommendations because they believe that she will help them be better people. Absolutely. And, and, uh, she, she will help you fulfill your destiny. I mean, that's the business she's in. That is a very, very uh, attractive business. Yes, and it is. It's not, it's fulfilling destiny. It's also, and this is something that is very similar, but uh, I think phrased slightly differently based on her own biography. It is the alchemy of transforming the tragedy and suffering into meaning. Absolutely. It takes that tragedy and suffering that you've gone through. We've all had hard times. <laughs> Very few of us is as bad as Oprah, obviously. But we all suffer. We all have struggles. And to have the sense that those struggles can be converted into meaning, that I think is very appealing to people as well. Well, that's also a, a very important manner in which she marketed uh, her message. Uh, not only did she transcend race, I, I mean, she... Um, there, there's one excellent book about her, the subtitle of which is The Glamour of Misery. Everybody has suffered. So that's something that we all have in common. And, and that, tra that does transcend race. Uh, and uh, now it's to a greater or lesser degree, but there you have it. Uh, and, and that's why until recently, she stayed away from politics because not everybody is a Democrat, but everybody has suffered. So, you know, that's something that we all have in common. Then if we think about the next figure we examined, Henry Ford. With Henry Ford, he was determined to put America on wheels, to make something that everyone could afford and experience. And with Oprah, again, there is that strong sense of for the people. This is something that everyone can do. It's not just something that I, Oprah Winfrey, self-made billionaire, most influential person in the world can do, but it's something that everyone can do. No, and, and the fact... Um... Uh, the fact that she has done it means that you can do it too. I mean, there's a very, one of the, uh, once again on YouTube, there's I think the top 25 shows or top 10 shows. And one of the, one of the very top ones was when she came on the stage with 67 pounds of pig fat in a 
you know, little red, um, uh, which she was, which she had put in a little red wagon, which she was took on stage. And, and that's how much weight she had lost, 67 pounds. And, and her message was, you know, I did this, you can too. Now, and another thing, which to use the rather odd word, I think, humanizes her, is her battle with her, with her weight, which, you know, she did lose all the weight. She was very trim and then she put it back on. Now, uh, eating, uh, apparently she has a thyroid disorder, uh, but which may be part of the problem that she has controlling her weight. But eating is also uh, a tranquilizer. Uh, and this, 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 has, this woman has led an incredibly active life and worked very, very hard and done very, very well at something that's very, very hard, uh, very difficult, which is getting up about their lives on camera. And if we think about Oprah and the weight loss and weight gain, the yo-yoing, all these different things, there I see an echo of Sam Walton, not because Sam Walton's weight varied, but as you put it, when Sam Walton looked in the mirror, he could see his customer. Yes. And when Oprah looked in the mirror, she could see someone who, despite all of her phenomenal accomplishments, still has some of the same struggles that her viewers have. And in fact, the fact that she has some of those same struggles actually endears her even more to those viewers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the final element is really Mary Kay Ash, where we describe Mary Kay Ash as being someone who succeeded based on charisma. Oprah, even more so, that's true. And the message from Mary Kay Ash was, you can do it. And that was the message Mary Kay took from her mother when she was seven years old, cooking for her father because her mother couldn't be there. We thought that was a tough childhood. Oh boy, Oprah is even so much more. And yet with Oprah, it again is, you can do it. Right? To her audience, you can become a better person. You can overcome this suffering. It's the same message. Um, and then that's something that, that, that charismatic people have in common. You can do it. And I, there's no question that, that you know, the magnitude of what uh, Oprah had to overcome is greater than you know, imaginable. But nevertheless, I mean, Mary Kay, she started, you know, I mean, uh, her first husband left her, her second husband dropped dead a month before she was gonna launch her business. Her daughter died uh, of pneumonia in 1991, my recollection is. Um, there was a lot of sadness in her life. And, she found a way around it. Um, and, um, uh, you know, Oprah did too. Absolutely. But then that also brings us to the last major topic of discussion. So the power of Oprah is in being able to empathize, being able to persuade, being able to convince, being able to help people figure out how they can become a better person, how they can convert the suffering in their life into meaning, how they can improve themselves. But the dark side of Oprah has been her support of some figures who, let's put it bluntly, do not appear to have the best interests of her viewers at heart. And I'm reminded of this by the title of an article that I thought was really the headline that was really pointedly written, which is, Oprah's record of promoting charlatans should perhaps give us pause about her impending presidency. And if we think about the people she's really responsible for the careers of, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, 
people like Jenny McCarthy and the anti-vaccination movement, there's some damage that Oprah's done. Well, uh, you know, the anti-vaccination, especially given what we're going through today, is just horrifying. Um, and I agree with you. Uh, I mean, uh, she's, uh, there, are, there are certainly people who have uh, criticized her own message. Um, uh, here, here's a quote from one of these critics. She said, um, I just can't watch the show. Um, it debases emotion. It provides everyone with glib psychological formulas. These people go around talking like a fortune cookie. And I think Oprah is in a very large way responsible for that. But I, 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 what I would say about these uh, satellites that circle or pilot fish, whatever the proper metaphor would be, that uh, are swim along with, with Oprah, is that uh, none of them uh, are of anything like, they're in no sense competitors. I mean, they, they, you know, she has made them possible and I'm, doubtless has made them very wealthy. And, and in, in many cases, uh, the messages these people are, are marketing are, are not uh, in tune with the public welfare. But uh, I do find it kind of interesting that none of them have really taken off. I mean, these are not, these are not household names the way she is. Well, very few people are household names the way that Oprah is. But I think that if you went out into the world and you asked people, do you know who Dr. Oz is or who Dr. Phil is? I think a majority of Americans would be able to say, yeah, I may not watch them, but I've heard of them. Yeah, that's kind of frightening, but there you have it. And I do think that, you know, again, I'm certainly not a fan, especially of things like the anti-vaccination movement. But when I see the way Oprah has supported these people, it almost feels to me like her own life experience where she overcame this unbelievable tragedy and hardship. It's almost like magic that she's been able to do this. Maybe she has sympathy for the unbelievable. She believes so much in possibility because her own life is proof that almost anything is possible that she then goes along and says, well, if anything is possible, I suppose that what these people are selling could be possible. Well, uh, I, I, I think that uh, often the most uh, skeptical people turn out to be the most credulous people. Because once you get over the barrier of their skepticism, then you're inside uh, their, their belief. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, if you, if you look at some of the self-help stuff, it's, I mean, it leaves me just ice cold because it, it, they're, 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 they are often sayings, basically, nostrums that are, uh, no matter who uh, uh, enunciates them, that are unconnected with anything real. Uh, but she, it's not just the people that you've mentioned. If you take a look at her books, she, she features other people, too, who... Um, are, you know, uh, frankly, selling snake oil, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's out there meeting the market test, so. Yes, yeah, so the, the polite term I've heard used is new age, which yeah. I think is a very strange euphemism for unscientific and vaguely spiritual. I, 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 I've heard that phrase, too, and that's as good a definition of it as I've ever encountered. And um, I, uh, I'm afraid it's just, I'm old age at the age of 72, not new age. 
I think that we should all be, uh, I think we should all place a greater value on old age versus new age, it seems. Well, I hope so. But, you know, obviously I would still say that looking at the grand sweep of Oprah's impact, the positive impact she's had far outweighs the, the negative impact from these, and I think you put it very appropriately, pilot fish or remoras that sort of swim along in her wake. The overarching thing that she's done in terms of both the message she's brought, her shift from trash TV to something more uplifting, and just her own biography and ability to impact America. I mean, as we put it, she may be one of the people we can thank for electing Barack Obama in 2008. She may have made the difference. All of those things argue that, again, she has put her charisma largely to positive use, albeit with some dark side. I, I'm, we're on the same page here. Yes. I agree with you. So when we look at Oprah, what are the lessons that people can take away? Because obviously Oprah has a very specific kind of career in the media. She's our first media entrepreneur. And so in some sense, you know, there is so much about her life that's played out in public in the way that was not true for most of the other figures we've discussed. But does that mean that it's harder to draw lessons from her life? Or what are the things that you take away from her life that you would point to and tell other people to emulate? Well, um, first of all, it's all her, all, all her companies uh, are privately held. And we do not know very much about Oprah as a manager. She um, uh, has said um, she, in a Fortune interview, in an interview in Fortune magazine in uh, the year 2002, she said, I am not a businesswoman. And apparently she, I mean, it has been said, I don't know how true this is, that she has kind of a, a casual relationship with the balance sheet and that she's not an active manager of her own bank and that she, I have read that she keeps $50 million in cash just, you know, for a rainy day. I guess it would be a really rainy day. Um, but uh, I think that, um, uh, I think that when you see someone triumph over adversity to the extent that she did, that her own life, her own life story is the best person that you can take from her. <clears throat> Which is, you know, uh, it's the Mary Kay lesson. You can do it. If she can do what she did, you know, uh, what can you do to better yourself and to overcome uh, those forces that are holding you back? Those are, those are not bad questions. They, 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 they're questions which, which demand more than fortune cookie answers, but they're the right questions because there is, uh, uh, there are things in all of us that keep us from being our best selves. There are hurdles that we all have to jump and we're all gonna experience suffering. And if we can sort of manage this and, 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 and triumph over it, that's, that's not nothing. So uh, I think we can learn that from her. I do think that if you were, as, and this is a point you made when we talked about, about her biography, if you were to say to someone, Imagine if you were 14 years old, repeatedly sexually abused, a juvenile delinquent, the grieving mother of a dead child, and to say that you would from there become the most influential woman in the world, that is truly 
a remarkable story and message in itself. And as he put it, Oprah herself is the message that she conveys. And every day as she goes out there and as she empathizes and continues to connect with people, despite her massive achievements, that's the message she's sending. That's my view. Uh, ha have you ever by some wild chance seen a movie called Babette's Feast? Ah, I have not. I am familiar with the plot of Babette's Feast, interestingly enough, because I am familiar with movie critics. And by the way, Oprah Winfrey dated the famed movie critic Roger Ebert. He was Ebert, the one who yeah, suggested yeah. to her that she syndicate her show, and he told her that she would be more successful than he in terms yeah. of making money, and he was absolutely correct. But yes, I'm familiar with the plot, but why don't you relay it to people? Just, by the way, that was an extraordinarily decent thing that Ebert, uh, he played a very important role in her life. If this were a, 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 a if we were going to do her whole biography, he, he definitely, and he was also Chicago-based. And uh, um, uh, at the end of the movie, um, which is a lovely movie to watch, and uh, if, it's, if it's, I don't know if it's available, must be available on Netflix or something. Um, uh, the general, uh, a, a guy who, um, uh, a man who visited a small town in Denmark, a Dane, who visited a small town in Denmark for a brief period when he was young and then came back as a, a general and as a distinguished man, uh, has a meal. This is the feast, Babette's feast and uh, is astonished by, you know, Blini's Demidov here in the middle of no place. And uh, when he leaves, he says, this meal has proven to me that anything is possible. And uh, I say, you know, you have to see the movie and it's well worth seeing. And, and that is her message. You know, uh, don't be encumbered by history. Go out and do something wonderful to quote Robert Noyce, Intel employee number one. That's, that's her message. And, and that's, you know, through all the new age, through all the fortune cookie stuff, that's the message that her biography captures and it's worth knowing. And I very quickly, as I sometimes do when we're broadcasting, brought up the entry for Babette's Feast. And at the end of the movie, one of the sisters that she has helped cook the feast for says, now you will be poor the rest of your life. To which Babette replies, an artist is never poor. And the other sister says, but this is not the end, Babette. In paradise, you'll be the great artist God meant you to be. Oh, how you will enchant the angels. It's a great movie, Chris. And I, I think I'd like you to see it this evening. I mean, that's my assignment for you. I will have to try to find out where it is streaming. I can no doubt locate it. And I will, once I figure out where it is streaming, also include a link for everyone else so that they too can watch Babette's Feast and derive a greater understanding of Oprah Winfrey. That would be great. Well, Richard, this has been another phenomenal discussion. The figure of Oprah Winfrey is such a fascinating one. And again, even though you said everyone knows her story, I did not know her full story before this, and I'm very glad to have learned it. It is even more inspirational than I thought it was given the way that she's been able to transform tragedy into meaning and touch so many other people's lives. That look, that's what the charismatic does. They make meaning. It's not just about making money, although she made plenty of it. They make meaning. That's, that's, the, that's the mystique of the, of the charismatic character.
Well, Richard, thank you for joining me and helping make meaning for our listeners. And I look forward to having you back soon to discuss yet another charismatic leader. Great. I look forward to it, too. Thank you so much, Chris.